those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. It's Mexi, and today we'll be talking to several former employees of No Evil Foods, which is a vegan food company with highly appropriative branding that uses socialist iconography and socialist language to sell their foods. <laughs> For example, appropriating the Zapatistas for their branding. Um, and they recently completely quashed uh, workers' attempt to unionize using some of the most, you know, dirty, dubious tactics out there. Although, you know, this is the kind of thing that happens everywhere. We live under capitalism. We live in late stage capitalism. Union busting is very prevalent. This is not unique to No Evil Foods. But I wanted to talk about this because in Toronto, there are at least three vegan joints. <laughs> One that is explicitly leftist in their public facing image. They actually assist in anti-fascist actions and other, you know, kind of radical demonstrations, but they all treat their workers so terribly and also prevent them from unionizing. And again, this is, this is not something unique to vegan establishments, right? This is happening across the board under this capitalist system. This is happening at, you know, all, all number of establishments and organizations and companies and corporations, etc. because this is, you know, literally what class war is about. But it feels especially egregious when it's a vegan company that tries to present themselves as caring about plural justice, right? As I talked about in my vegan TM video and, you know, what we talk about on this podcast all the time is looking at veganism or anti-speciesism or animal liberation, you know, looking at this as a political stance, not just a grocery list, not just a consumption list. We are not going to consume our way to animal liberation under this broader political economy that will continue to destroy animal habitat and harm animals. Um, you know, our, our project is much bigger than just the consumption piece. So while it's fantastic that there are so many more vegan companies now and vegan options, and it's making that, you know, it, it's making living in line with that political stance that you've decided to take a lot more easy, um, you know, the, the buck doesn't stop there, right? We have to do a lot more activism, a lot more anti-capitalist activism, a lot more activism, you know, uh, against white supremacy, against ableism, against all of these interconnecting systems that inform and uphold speciesism in our society. So, you know, seeing vegan corporations <laughs> that seem to get it, right? They seem to understand that this needs to be more than just consumerism. This needs to be more than just buy this product to save the animals. We need to be more revolutionary than that, right? Um, seeing them just use that as a brand, <laughs> right? We've, we've just reached peak capitalism where solidarity and, you know, anti-capitalist imagery are really good branding um, to, to put out to the world while you completely mistreat your workers and screw them over and just absolutely um, spread lies, tell them lies about the dangers of unionizing and how much better it will be if you have no protections as a worker. 
And for a number of these companies, you know, the ones that I talked about in Toronto and, and this one in particular, right? If you understand speciesism and you understand that anti-speciesist action has to take action or at least have solidarity with other social movements, like uh, movements against patriarchy, against racism and white supremacy, against capitalism, etc. If you understand this, <laughs> if you understand that this is all wrapped up in animal liberation, if we want animal liberation, we need human liberation as well. It needs to be a complete system change. Then it actually doesn't really make sense, you know, to run your businesses in this hypercapitalist way. I mean, why aren't these these places co-ops? Right? Like, why aren't these cooperatives from the get go if you do have that more, you know, big picture, broader political understanding of animal liberation and anti speciesism? But alas, here we are. <laughs> so, before we jump into the interview, I'm going to thank the new patrons for this month. Very special thanks to new patrons Kyrgyz and Jamie. If you would like to support the show, we are a donor-funded show, so it really does go a long way to help us keep the show going. You can become a monthly patron subscriber at patreon.com slash veganvanguard, or you can just give us a one-time donation or tip via PayPal, which is up on our website, veganvanguardpodcast.com, or just like and share the episodes with friends and family. Something that actually really helps us increase our reach is if you give us a five-star rating on iTunes or whatever app you listen to us on, or you can take it one step further. You can leave us a review, which are awesome. I always love reading them, especially the Canadian ones, because that's the, the first country that pops up when I sign in. So yeah. And without further ado, let's get into the interview with these former workers from No Evil Foods. My name is John. I started with uh, no evil in October and my last day was May 1st so I was there for uh, a little over six months my name is Courtney Roach um, I started in January and I was fired on April 30th and my name is Megan um, I worked at no evil foods from December 3rd up until about mid-June Great. Uh, thank you all for, for being on the show with us today. Um, really sorry that you had to go through this terrible experience. Um, as I was talking about in the intro, it's really uh, a shame when, you know, vegan companies that purport to care about plural justice, treat their employees like absolute crap and, um, just don't let them unionize. Um, I know this is something that happens in all capitalist industries because we are in late state capitalism, but it seems particularly egregious when uh, you know your branding is such that um, you do care about multiple intersecting oppressions and then you conduct yourselves like this. Um, so just to start off, I wanted to ask you all what first drew you to the company, if it was anything more than just you know needing a paycheck and how would you describe the company's branding and their public facing image? Uh, well, for me, uh, what drew me to the company was literally their marketing. Um, I have been vegan for years. I wanted to be a part of a company that I thought would, um, I, it seems it, it just felt like 
it feels like this is the future, you know, like plant meets the future. And I just wanted to be a part of that somehow. And, um, no evil foods just kind of called to me with their marketing. And so I literally moved from out of state for this job and, um, it, uh, it's been disappointing the whole experience from start to finish. Um, that's, that's, that's the short version of my story. Anyway, (laughs) Uh, that's that, you know, I was, I was drawn to their marketing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, what a wake up call. For anyone who isn't aware of this company's branding, like how would you describe their their branding? Uh, very left leaning, um, quote unquote revolutionary. Uh, lots of socialist imagery. Yeah, lots of socialist imagery. Um, Comrade Cluck, El Zapatista. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, you, it, it, just a quick glance at their website, or even if you go on their social media pages, it's like, wow, these guys are awesome. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go out. And- you know, drop $10 on some sausage and, and check them out. <laughs> they, they say they're feeding the revolution or something like that. Wow. Uh, I was, I took this job because I was evicted from my uh, last residence. So I had to move in with my partner who had, who was moving in to Weaverville. Um, so I became unemployed also because I had organized at my previous job and had been fired for it. So I needed a paycheck and I needed some place where I could, um, as a trans person, feel, you know, reasonably accepted without going crazy. Um, And so I took that job because I needed one desperately, not for any uh, buy-in to their imagery per se, but... Mm -hmm. Then I, well, I started there. John had already gotten the job there. Um, him and I lived together. So, um, I already kind of knew that, you know, this pace, this place paved like kind of competitively for the area. And I knew that the union drive was already going on there, uh, Mm. before I actually got the job. So I was really excited thinking that I'd be able to make a career out of the job. And that's what ended up ultimately bringing me there. Mm Mm-hmm. So um, I guess when you initially started working there, what were conditions like initially? Um, And when did things start to shift for you? I heard that there were some changes after um, Blue Horizon Venture Capital invested in the company and also maybe um, when you moved to the new facility. So I guess, um, yeah, what, what were things like initially and how and when did it start to break down? So none of us were there, um, for the actual, uh, change from the facility. So when the union drive originally started, that was last summer and me, uh, Megan and Courtney, none of us were there for that. Mm. But, um, from what I've heard there, they didn't have healthcare at the time. Um, and, and, and honestly, uh, the main things that I noticed when I got there were, um, we were getting out late. Uh, there was no second shift differential. The protective equipment was not the best. Machines were constantly breaking down or we were having problems with the machines. Um, it just felt like there was a lot of chaos, um, on the production floor. They would repeatedly push cooks late. So, you know, they'd set us, uh, they'd set a goal for the night. And then when that goal was met, they'd say, well, we've met our goal. Let's just throw in a couple more cooks and see if we can push it a little, uh, push it even farther. And uh, that usually resulted in us getting out even later. Things like that. Uh, did, did you want to? 
Yeah, I can jump it. Overall, I liked the job. Um, when I first got there, um, I second everything that John said about like, you know, the, the safety equipment, um, cause you're using like corrosive chemicals in, in their little dish pit where you clean every single dish by hand. Um, so that could have been better. There were just little things here and there, nothing that couldn't have been fixed by investing a little bit more money into keeping the workers safe and, you know, looking at what they needed as far as getting out on time and making sure the scheduled shifts were the way they were supposed to be. But overall, I really liked the job and didn't really think it went downhill until the captive audience meeting started, at least for me. Um, yeah, uh, it, I, I hated it. It was the worst job I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it was, it, it was a job. It was okay. It was mm -hmm. sadly, like Megan said, just one of the highest paying jobs around. So, I mean, I liked it enough and everyone I worked with was more or less very respectful and nice. Really the worst part about the job was it just had some of the like most, I not even, they weren't professional interactions and they weren't friendly interactions with management. They were somehow neither of those things. They were just very alienating interactions I would always have with management. Um, but other than that, everyone else I worked with was great. I mean, workers are usually very nice people, especially in the workplace, um, because, you know, we understand how to work together uh, for the most part. Um, but yeah, so the job was okay. It went downhill, especially after I saw the union election vote was lost. Like after that, you know, the company put on a nice big like fake smile and like was real like, sure, anything goes, everything's great, guys. Um, you know, before the vote and then after they won the vote, it's like, okay, back to business, you know, we gotta work and that really just meant, you know cracking down on people who they saw had caused that problem, mm -hmm. uh, playing favorites with people who they believed like had supported them or whatever. Um, and all around just like, you know, kind of screwing people over. I mean, they fired this one old woman who she wasn't that old. I mean, she was like nearing <laughs> retirement age though. And she was a dishwasher and she felt deathly sick before, <laughs> even before the pandemic actually. And she couldn't come into work and they fired her. Wow. So, I mean, like, that's the kind of, when they say they care about their work, the workers, it means the ones who can actually, like, who are good enough for them or whatever. You know, like, the ones who shut up and show up, basically. Mm -hmm. The ones who shut up and vote yes. Yeah, and, yeah, <laughs> and show up. For or, sure. Oh, no, sorry. Shut up yeah. and vote no. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have, uh, you know, email testimony from a couple of other workers here, um, and they were around uh, for the switch to the new facility. And um, one of them said that when they started working at the original facility, it was uh, quite a lot better. Um, it was hard work, but they had a good crew and they had um, better hours than they did um, after they switched to the new facility. They said the switch also made it quite stressful because they kept taking on really big stores like Walmart, etc. when they didn't actually have the means to fulfill the orders. Um, they had schedule changes that made it really difficult and um, yeah, just, just a lot more dangerous, etc. So yeah, I'm generally, generally getting the impression that I guess uh, before they kind of you know, got in bed with certain investors and transitioned to this new facility and really focused on growth, growth, growth. Um, it might have been slightly better, um, but certainly it went downhill. And then they, they, yeah, were obviously not 
um, concerned with taking care of the workers um, and respecting their union drive, which is just ridiculous. So um, I guess, how did each of you get involved with the union drive personally? And um, what issues were of greatest concern for you? So what were you fighting for specifically? Truthfully, I got involved with it because I was temporarily working with UFCW last year. Uh, once I had been fired from Earth Fair, a regional grocery store chain for organizing there, UFCW hired me to continue that campaign um, temporarily. And so I also, through doing that, you know, spoke to other workers and I found out about workers just deciding on their own to organize there last year. Um, and like I sat with them through some meetings that they had. So that's how I initially got involved um, and even really found out about the company because I hadn't really heard of it before then. So, and then, you know, skip ahead to January, I am jobless again. So I'm, I start at No Evil Foods and literally on the first or second day that I'm there, I overhear someone talking about the union drive and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm in. So mm -hmm. that's how I got involved basically. Nice. For, uh, for me, I, uh, basically was just approached by somebody who, um, asked me if I wanted to sign a union card and I said, yes, of course. <laughs> and I signed one. And, um, it, I mean, the biggest issues aside from, I mean, any work, any workplace is going to have issues and, you know, that's to be expected. But the, the main thing, two things for me, uh, were job security because uh, right now I'm living in uh, Western North Carolina, and, and uh, the other one was just having everything contractualized and put into a contract because uh, I had witnessed in the very short amount of time between when I started and even just when the captive audience meetings uh, started in like late January, early February, I had seen policies repeatedly changed, modified, like on a whim over and over and over and the fact that we had no say in that and everything was just so chaotic if we could just put that into a contract there would be some semblance of of, of stability there and um that's what i really wanted to see i wanted to see it put into a contract that is binding so um like i said um john started there before me so i knew that there was a union drive kind of underway already so of course my first day there i'm going around asking okay who's got the union cards like let me sign one let me sign one um, so uh so you know i signed a card maybe the second day i started there and just kind of was waiting to see what was going to happen i wasn't familiar with organizing or anything so i just kind of waited to see how that was going to play out. And then again, once those captive audience meetings started, I spent the whole time, like these were like hour long, two hour meetings. And so I would spend the whole time like debunking everything that they were saying. And it was, mm -hmm. yeah. So that's how I got started. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so I'll just read off um, uh, an answer from Scott, who was involved in the union drive. Um, they say, I was involved in the union drive. I would basically make pro-union arguments on the production floor and explain the benefits of unionizing to the other employees. I would also direct them to the people passing out union cards. Um, another thing I was good at was getting information from management and other departments. Having spent more time there than some of the other organizers, I had developed more friendships that could give me information that I could share with the group. About a month before we all got fired, I basically warned the group chat that the VP of production wanted to clean house. Um, with union meetings, I only attended two from the UFCW, and at no point were false promises made. They just stated the benefits of unionizing and how we could negotiate for the things we want. Um, so I guess, uh, I guess the big question is, uh, how did the company react? And specifically, what tactics did they use to bust up the unionization efforts. Uh, you mentioned the mandatory captive audience meetings, which to me just <laughs> sounded terrible. So maybe you could go into some of your experiences with these mandatory anti-union meetings that they forced you to attend. Yeah. So um, when they first kind of started to catch wind that people were signing union cards and that they were being passed around, um, they didn't take quite a militant approach to shutting it down right away. Um, they would break us off into little groups and let us what they called airing grievances. So they would all split us up into tiny little groups. So we could just kind of say the things that are bothering us about the workplace, what we wanted to see changed as I think their way of, well, what I thought at the time was that was their way of kind of like addressing these issues without us, you know, having to unionize. But what I learned later on is that that's a common tactic used when you're trying to bust up a union to make people feel like they have a voice when really it's just to single out like, you know, who the leader, who the ringleaders are in, uh, mm -hmm. in, you know, the whole drive. Um, so it started with that. Um, we ended up getting a shift differential for night shift, which was really cool. I think, what was it like a a dollar something like that or something yeah. they they gave night shift a dollar because it wasn't the preferred shift um mm -hmm. so that was really cool and i think they they also made a better effort to get us all out on time so small little improvements were made which was really cool um but of course those of us who still wanted the union were like okay like let's solidify all of these good things in a contract like let's do that so as it went on um you know that once once management figured out that um, we had filed for the election and that an election was going to be held. That's when these captive audience meetings started. And I could probably sit here and talk about those meetings for hours and how awful they were. <laughs> um, we, we were literally just fed, fed lies. Um, mm. he, like there was one meeting where um, the VP, uh, Mark McPeak, VP of manufacturing, I believe is his title. He sat there and just read a bunch of stuff out of, I think it was the NLRA mm -hmm. or just um, something like that. Just reading a bunch of like legal jargon to try to confuse everybody and make it sound like this big, scary corporation that's going to drag you into court if you violate one of their rules. And mm -hmm. that was really crazy. They played on fears of sexual harassment, saying that uh, any issue of sexual harassment in the work place would be supported by the union, not like the action what? itself, but they would be defending the worker. And then they would turn around and tell us that the union doesn't have to advocate for us. So it's like they, they just painted this narrative of like these sexual harassers being the only ones supported if this union comes in. It, it was absolutely ridiculous. Um, hmm. 
let's see what else they compared it to a shitty gym membership while turning around in the same breath and telling us that paying union dues are the equivalent, um, financial decision of buying a car or a house, just absolutely out there. Crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every single thing that they used against us in these meetings was a specific type of fear or concern that we, that they knew that we had. Um, so for example, like Megan said, they they played on sexual harassment fears because not even what was it? It was uh, like a week or two beforehand. Just yeah, weeks prior to these meetings starting on second shift, we had a case of somebody. We had an actual stalker situation on the production floor, and the person who was involved with that was sitting in this meeting, listening to this, being fed these lies about how the union could make it easier for. Um, sexual harassers or or stalkers or abusers or anything like that to get their jobs back um which is just so gross in in itself um but they played on financial fears by repeatedly talking about dues and uh repeatedly talking about how collective bargaining could make your wages go up or it could make your wages go down nothing is certain yeah. uh <laughs> they talked about the the investors and how the investors would be horrified uh, uh, to, to be involved with a company, a unionized startup that is um, – the, basically, the investors wouldn't want the company to be unionized. Um, mm. And they played on just general confusion. Like Megan said, they brought up the uh, union constitution. And, That's what it was. Yeah, the union constitution. And there was a whole meeting where Mark McPeak, the VP of manufacturing, just – read through the union constitution piece by piece by piece and we're all sitting there our eyes are glazing over and it was designed to I, I think it was designed to be like that because what he was trying to do was confuse you and say this is just a big old legal loop like you you cannot understand it you can't fathom how complicated this union constitution <laughs> is but if you don't understand this they can sue you so the union can sue you for what you don't understand. Go ahead. Try to read this. Here's a copy of it. Nobody's going to take a copy of it because mm-hmm. – Nobody's going to read through 13 pages of legal jargon like it, I didn't even bother doing that. It's just nonsense. Yeah, and, and, I, and I feel like probably one of the things that was designed to be – at least what I took to be designed to be targeted towards me specifically as a vegan – was um, these fears over the UFCW being associated with the uh, the uh, the Smithfield plant that's here? So the um, the local that we were going to unionize was uh, yeah UFC local 1208, and they represent Smithfield. And so they would say, "Well, we're going to be in bed with our competitors. Do you really want to be in bed with your with our competitors? And <laughs> do you really want to be associated with meat packers?" And I raised my hand at one of the meetings and I said, well, they're also the sixth largest uh, union in the country, and they don't just represent meatpackers. The UFCW as a whole represents thousands of different uh, companies and corporations and businesses. So to call them a meatpackers union is just so over the top and so ridiculous. And more specifically, too, is it's that they don't represent those companies. They represent the workers of those companies. Exactly. Exactly. They, they like the company does not pay them to, you know, it's the workers of that company. And I, yeah, like that point is especially egregious. And they also had brought up people have to realize too, it's like when they, and this will happen in any place where there's union busting, they will basically tell you facts when they do these things. 
but all they have to do is present them in the right way with the right tone in the right presentation in order to use that those facts to scare you and give it to you without context and that's yeah. how you really really divide people very easily if it was just outright lies i mean people could see through that you know but like the first thing that remember that flyer that they handed out that was about how the I think it was the president and the and vice president of the local 1208 like four or five years ago had been uh, basically caught for convict um, for embezzling money from the local. Um, and, and that was all that was on this flyer. It was like president like and VPs like send themselves to SeaWorld off of workers dues and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then that was all. That was all they said, and they made sure everyone read it, and they handed it out to everyone. They wanted everyone to see this. <laughs> Look at the whole article and any other article, and it says these people were fined. They had to pay back in full all of the money that they did embezzle plus interest. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it was handled. It was handled in the way an institution that is, like, democratically organized would the workers obviously didn't want that to happen, so they made sure that it stopped and that they were never in power again, you know? So it was just, like, crazy that they'll tell you this stuff and then, that's mm-hmm. like, people read the headline and that's what they believe. So that's all they had to do. Yeah, just absolutely ridiculous. Um, so, again, one of the um, people that I talked to over email said that they only attended one meeting before quitting in which they remember the owners emotionally asking them not to unionize. And one of them may have even cried (laughs) Um, and said that, you know, this was just really hurt their feelings basically. Um, And that like, you know, the, everyone was a family here and kind of using that um, to like emotionally manipulate people. And then I heard some audio clips, yeah, about, um, you know, the investors pulling out and then that would mean that everyone was out of a job kind of a thing. real risk that having a union and no evil foods will greatly impact our ability to continue raising capital, which risks the survival of our business. To be frank, I had one of our current investors say this week, I've seen hundreds of companies come across my desk. And I have never seen an investment in a unionized startup, especially not at this stage. If I was looking at this business for the first time, I would run the other way. Now, we don't know what's going to happen. But we're not the only option investors like this have. And we do need capital to grow. It's not optional. What else did I hear? Just just ridiculous. I'll, I'll actually put in some clips of the audio here so everyone can hear this. But these tactics seem really, really underhanded. They make it really, really, really hard to stop paying dues. Uh, this reminds me of like a really shitty gym membership that you just want to get out of. The stipulations on it are insane. So if you sign up for it, decide, nah, I'm not going to pay dues. Don't have enough money. I need to feed my family. I need to do whatever it is you decide to do with your money. I don't decide to do that. That's when they, they pull the pin on the grenade. It's, it's, it's going to, there's, there's repercussions. You just can't say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pay dues. We take our commitment to preventing harassment and discrimination really seriously. That is not part of our culture. We do not tolerate it. And it has no place here. If someone's accused of harassment and an investigation confirms the misconduct, then we're going to terminate that person. We've done it before. We will do it again. And I'm horrified at the thought that a union that's supposed to represent all of you, including anyone who is subject to harassment 
might fight to put that person back to work. And maybe they wouldn't. I mean, they, they do have the right not to process a grievance, and they definitely have a history of abandoning cases, cases along with their members' wishes. And according to Scott, they were two-hour meetings up to three times a week. It's a lot of time. Yeah, they deemed it. They deemed it more beneficial to them making for the company for the company to make money, which is one of the points that they would say a union would hurt. They deemed it more cost-effective to stop production for like yeah over a whole workday at the end of the week, you know. Mm-hmm. In order to and, and to pay lawyers thousands and thousands of dollars for like lawyer fees leading mm-hmm. up to that time, then it would be for them to have a union there. And that's that's not because a union makes a company less competitive. It's because it affects their ability to maximize profit mm-hmm. off of their workers. You know, like a union is what stops them from doing that. So they'll put money into making sure it doesn't happen so that they can at the end of the day more fully exploit the labor of their workers. It's just. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, reading these, these email responses, it seems like um, a lot of the grievances were around the schedule changes because initially it was a Monday to Thursday work week and that seemed pretty guaranteed. And then they changed it up and then it was Monday to Friday and they took away um, one of the paid breaks that workers had they even added Saturday, so they no longer had any control over their schedules, and they had no say in any of these decisions, and that's really just what they were looking for, um, which doesn't seem like a huge ask. Um, I also saw that um, recently they claimed that their branding was not, in fact, socialist, <laughs> after all of the pushback. After the backlash and being called out, they decided they weren't socialists, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely hilarious. Um and the fact that they needed they needed to walk back or they needed to apologize for the fact that they appropriated Zapatista imagery, right? Yeah. So funny thing about that, um, I'm still in contact with a handful of other workers um, that are that are still there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was informed yesterday, actually, that they they are changing the name of their uh, vegan chorizo from El Zapatista to El Capitan. And I don't I don't want to say that it's because, you know, I, I guess I can't say for sure that that wasn't in the works. But I kind of have a feeling it's because they got called out repeatedly and that the school of Chiapas disavowed them. Yeah. When the when the, when the schools for Chiapas found out about uh, uh, they, they had no idea apparently that um no evil was they using, were using their likeness to yeah that they were food. using their logo on their boxes and using their name on their products and in their marketing and when they found out about it they went crazy on twitter they they basically called them chorizo imposters mm. uh said that they <laughs> wanted uh no association with them and i guess they got it all worked out and they they talked it out in private but the end result of that is them changing the name so mm-hmm. now they uh you know I, I don't know if they're still going to continue to donate to the schools for Chiapas, but maybe mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah funny stuff so after the vote so I, I as i understand it before all of these mandatory meetings um the union drive had the votes to unequivocally form the union um but after all of these mandatory meetings the vote did not go in the the union's favor, obviously. Um, so 
were you reprimanded after the vote um, for being involved with the union drive? And if so, how? Well, I, I don't, I don't think anybody was immediately reprimanded as far as I know. Um, they, they kind of, I mean, after the election, after the election was lost on our end, they sent out an email to company wide saying that, you know, we understand like that people have still have strong feelings about this. We just want to work together and move forward as a team, blah, 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 you know, all that kind of nonsense. And so things were kind of quiet and calm after all of that. But what really kicked it back into high gear was when COVID-19 started to become a problem in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say initially, though, after the, I felt um, I was definitely getting more uh, scrutiny from direct supervisors than the before the vote. And, you know, just mostly small micromanagement things that just weren't happening. Um before then, that suddenly began to happen. But, you know, what, and, and things like, you know, well, you were a little late, or like, um, or making you sign a piece of paper for saying you were one minute late, things like that. And, and also, uh, someone who was vocally spoke up about workplace grievances was fired, maybe just over a week after the vote. Um, and this was someone who I had met uh, initially in 2019 when they were writing a letter um, to present to the company and doing more informal worker organizing before like a UFCW drive had started, but he was involved with organizing and he was fired because during a meeting, during one of these breakout meetings, he uh, was basically asked to like be a secretary, like like take notes or something um, for someone else who had who was supposed to be doing that. And basically, uh, you know, he was bringing up issues and then something happened, but he like left and stormed off. And um, they basically told the person who was running that meeting to throw out all the notes anyways, because we don't even read them. And then he was fired or he was suspended and then fired. So that was a pretty obvious sort of just maybe not a direct retaliation for unionizing, but more uh, open repression of anyone who just has grievances or any kind of dissent, I guess. It's mm-hmm. not even dissent. It's just, hey, this is wrong. Can we fix it? And they keep not fixing something. Like, I can understand that if you had been there for a year and you kept saying to fix something and it never got fixed, it would be pretty frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, and then like what Megan said, like once the pandemic happened, um, or once the the county had declared um, a stay home, stay safe order, uh, yeah, things started to get ratcheted up, I guess, like more intense. In what way? In the sense that people were anxious, like nervous. Mm. They were wondering what was going to happen. They were concerned about their their health, the health of their families, um, Mm -hmm. and wanting to be able to be safe, but also needing, needing to work to survive. And even just that initial response from workers was met with basic, with like a real, like everyone felt it in the response from the company and was aware of it because we all talked about it. It was like a real condescension and a real, like almost like 
So the initial response was to call small meetings of people and answer questions and talk about what needed to be done. And basically what they said was, um, if you don't feel safe here, you can leave. <laughs> and and that was it. And, I, and people asked, well, does that mean we'll have jobs? Does that mean, like, what does that mean? They're like, if you don't feel safe here, you can leave. That was literally all that was being said. And any kind of emotional, like, or, like, hard line of questionings from workers was met with, like, condescension. And, like, I can't even accurately convey what it was like on that first day because it was very stressful. Mm -hmm. um, like, people were sent yeah. home and suspended for simply having really reasonable responses to what was going to happen, you know? Um, I heard some audio of that, uh, I guess, of them saying something to that effect of, you know, oh, well, unemployment is that it's such a such a low percentage right now. And like in the state of I, I don't know, whatever, like, you know, it's only 2% unemployment there. So why don't you just go there and get a job? <laughs> something yeah, the VP of manufacturing, Mark McPeak. That yeah, him. <laughs> we'll, we'll file that one under post that did not age uh, well, because uh, he said that in February. Hmm. And uh, like, just, just a month yeah. later is when everything just shut down. Yeah, with COVID. Yeah. Um, what I, I what I was gonna say is, um, at one of our COVID meetings specifically, we heard exactly what Courtney heard. Um, and this was at a second shift meeting, which is just funny because that just tells you that the uh, the talking points for management were basically, if you don't feel safe, go home. You don't have to be here. Um, but I had raised my hand at one of these meetings and I said, we have an immunocompromised worker here with us who is afraid of getting sick. I don't want to get anybody sick. I don't want to get this person sick. And, and the response that I got from the plant manager was, we don't want anybody to be here if they don't feel safe. And <laughs> so that just puts immunocompromised people in particular in a very bad spot because like, what are their options? Their options are quit and starve, possibly, or stay and risk getting sick and dying. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, so um, uh, Scott said that uh, they were definitely reprimanded after the vote and that they used uh, the COVID response as an extra reason for micromanagement. Um, and they were suspended for missing a time on a temperature log, but it the one that they missed was really pointless anyway. Like it wasn't really that important, but they suspended them with without pay for eight days. <laughs> and then when they finally called to tell them that they were fired, uh, they, they um, decided to add in a secret write-up that they had done about them having a self, uh, their cell phone in their back pocket. So it just seems like really petty crap that was going on there <laughs> um, in order to reprimand people for doing this. Yeah. Sorry, let me just uh, interject there real quick. One of yeah. the things that they did throughout COVID um, on the, the note of these secret or shadow write-ups that they were doing is that they were writing people up and not telling them about it. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of – that might be a segue into uh, the NLRB cases that Courtney and I have. But people were being written up and people were being disciplined and n they were not being told about it. How can you correct a problem if you don't know there's a problem? Mm -hmm. Like that, that's yep. just insane. I, yeah. I, I have never worked at a place where I had been written up and never signed off on it. I, I've never heard of that. Yeah. Or, or made aware that this like, what, you know, further failure to correct behavior will lead to your terminate. Like I, I never got any, 
I never got any words like, hey, if this happens again, we're going to have to like review re- review you working here or like, you, you know, it can lead to termination or whatever. Like it was just, hey, uh, we think your pants just aren't long enough. So we're going to have to. <laughs> we're gonna have to wow. Um, and, and hey, I know um, you wear knee high boots like when you actually work on the floor, but that doesn't matter because somehow germs get out of the boot from your, you know, like, mm. it's just it's a quick note, there is a storm coming in. So I might lose audio a little bit. Okay, no problem. We'll deal with that if it comes. Um, so uh, I guess john and uh, Megan, did you want to go into the cases that you were just talking about? Um, yeah, I mean, my case uh, involves basically um, the one thing that I was very vocal about them not doing. Um, and that was uh, social distancing. And the, the the problem with social distancing in a production facility is that it's not always possible. So mm-hmm. it makes it very convenient for managers who have it out for you when they want to find a reason to get you in trouble. They can find you in those positions where it's not possible and basically reprimand you for it. So mm-hmm. in my case, I was on a conveyor belt with somebody else and um, – According to the plant manager, I wasn't far enough away from them. And the next day I walked in and I was basically fired at the door. Um, I was uh, met by the head of human resources and uh, in a three minute conversation, uh, six and a half months of what I thought was a career was ended. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's how that ended. So. um, Wow. That's terrible. Yeah. And and then. Courtney kind of touched on her case, and and did did you want to go on into detail with that, Courtney? Did we lose her? Did we? Might have lost her. Yeah, we'll we'll let her maybe come back if that's possible. Um, but maybe we can continue with your case, Megan. Yeah. So so I don't actually have an ongoing case now. I've given sworn testimony in in their case and have been really forthright and just explaining everything that I've seen management do that that could possibly help the case. Um, But what's interesting is that um, I truly believe that they were trying to. So the the, the, sorry, let me back up a little bit. The way Mm -hmm. that this one is Courtney was fired um, over the pants that weren't long enough, which if. (laughs) You could see a picture of the pair of pants. It's just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, But so she's fired. (laughs) And then um, I get called into the office and they asked me to sign off on a piece of paper that says I was one minute late on April 17th and two minutes late on April 28th. Wow. Now, yeah. So, (laughs) um so they bring this to my attention and they want me to sign off on something that simply says your behavior is unacceptable. You acknowledge that you could face termination if you don't correct this behavior immediately. So I responded by just saying, absolutely not. I'm not signing this. This is silly. Like if you want me to sign something about this, you need to specify how late I actually was because if you're trying to write me up over one minute and two minutes, that's just not, that I wanted in writing specifically about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And, um, my supervisor at the time told me that they didn't have the authority to change what was on the paper, but that I could go address it with Drew Pollock, our HR, the, the head HR guy there. Um, so that's what I did. I went over and 
talk to him, like explaining, look, dude, I'm here on time every day. I don't know what this is about. This is silly. Like I shouldn't have to sign off on something that says my behavior is unacceptable. I'm a great employee. Mm -hmm. And he kind of, he kind of blew me off. He's like, oh, well, you know, I'll look into it. I'll get back to you. And I was just like, okay, whatever, dude. So I go back to work. I work that day. And the very next day, John was fired. And it just, it's just really interesting how I kind of pushed back and they didn't end up firing me, but they just went after my boyfriend. Like it was just, it was really weird. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, what I ended up doing, I was, I was never fired. I ended up quitting mid June. Like it just became such a hostile place. Everybody was afraid to sign any sort of petition, it just became too much for me. Like I would go into work feeling sick every day and it just, it got to a point where it just wasn't good for my mental health and I couldn't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, which is a really sad way to end it. I tried to stick it out there, hoping that these NLRB cases would get resolved and that Courtney and John would be able to come back or something like that. But, um, Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah. One of sorry. Uh, I just wanted to say too, one of the important aspects, I guess, if you were to like maybe put the story into a timeline, you would have the uh, union election um, or I'm sorry, you would have the, the captive audience meeting. So you'd have the, um, the union election. And then immediately after that, you would have the COVID outbreak. And following the COVID outbreak, uh, the important part of this story specifically this. is the petitions. And so mm-hmm. the petitions, um, at least the first one was a petition that we put together immediately after the union drive because they didn't guarantee hazard pay. And um, the and what I mean by they didn't guarantee hazard pay is what they did is they basically so everybody is basically everybody's panicking and saying uh, we have this outbreak here or not in the facility, but we have this pandemic going on. What are we going to do about this? Mm-hmm. And management's response to the the fear of their employees was to give them three options. Have you heard about this yet? No. Okay. This, this, it, it gets worse. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, the three options that they gave everybody was to quit with um, no option to return, but you could sign a, uh, an NDA. You would have to sign an NDA and you would get a three week payout. So basically if you didn't feel safe there, you'd get um, three weeks of pay, but you'd have to sign an NDA for it, and you can never come back to the company again. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, the other option was to quit, and then they'd leave the door open for you. You could reapply. And then the other option was to stay. Now, if you stayed, there was a promise of hazard pay. They kind of dangled it in front of your face, but the only way you would get hazard pay is if you maintained 90 days of perfect attendance. In the middle of a pandemic. Mm. So that's where the the first petition came from. We said, um, well, how about no, that the, the, the hazard is now. Why aren't we getting hazard pay now? So this petition went around. It, got, it quickly got a majority of signatures on it. And the day before we were about to turn it in, I was pulled off the production floor. And this is actually part of my NLRB case. Um, I was questioned about the um the petition and i was asked by the head of human resources if this petition had anything to do with the union which is illegal mm-hmm. um 
And the next day they announced hazard pay. That same day we were about to turn the petition in, they decided to jump in front of it, announce hazard pay, and claim that it was their idea. Great. <laughs> Sorry, that was a mouthful, but yeah. I, I wanted that I wanted that context in there. Yeah, no, that's really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so were there more petitions? You said there maybe were a couple or so after John and Courtney were both terminated, um, we still put together two different petitions. Um, there was one to make the hazard pay permanent, and then the other one was to – it included a couple things, but the main gist of it was to get clarification on disciplinary action so that people had a solid understanding of – the way discipline worked there because literally nobody knew what was going on. You know, mm -hmm. I even spoke to one of our supervisors after John was terminated and even this person didn't have a really clear answer. She's like, well, sometimes these verbal warnings can be write-ups and then these write-ups can be terminable offenses. It's just mm -hmm. like a big convoluted pile of nonsense um, mm -hmm. that she didn't even really seem to have like a full understanding of. Um, so the, anyway, the other petition was basically asking for clarification on disciplinary action and how that process worked now and mm -hmm. to reinstate the fired employees, um, you know, or at least give them a chance to appeal, you know, what had happened once we clarify, you know, the process of disciplinary action. And so after I put those together, we, I got about maybe a third of the signatures from the employees that were there. Um, but I had no less than five people tell me it might've been more, but five I can think of off the top of my head. People were afraid to sign them. They saw what happened to John. They saw what happened to Courtney. They saw what happened to, uh, Scott and nobody, everybody was like, well, maybe it'll be better if I just keep my head down. Mm -hmm. And so that that was all really disappointing. Um, so the, I, I promised people that I wasn't going to turn the petitions in unless I got at least 51 percent of the staff to sign it, because, you know, why would I just put everybody's name out there to be targeted next? Mm -hmm. um, so so that was all really kind of a, a disappointing thing. So I mm -hmm. never ended up turning those ones in. But yeah, that's so disappointing and just really upsetting when, you know, that chilling effect kind of sets in because that's obviously exactly what they wanted with like all of their terrible tactics um so yeah something that scott said was that um they said the only thing i would add is that almost everything good this company has done for employees has been due to pressure from the workers getting the pay bumped up to 1365 people getting raises that they were months behind on and also getting back pay getting health insurance shift differentials hazard pay etc um and they mentioned that, you know, you guys petitioned for it and then they jumped in on, sorry, jumped in front of the petition and rolled it out the same day they questioned you, John, for the petition. Um, so basically, you know, all the good things that that happened here were because of sustained pressure from the workers. And um, yeah, they just, uh, you know, they just wouldn't let people unionize. Really, if they were a radical company that cared about, you know, pro-intersectional veganism, anti-speciesism, et cetera, you know, this would have been a co-op <laughs> from the get-go, yeah. right? Yeah. Like if you're going to appropriate Zapatista imagery, why was this not a, a co-op in the beginning, right? But um, yeah, um, exactly. but yeah, but anyway, so um, what would you say that organizers can take from this experience that you've had? So, like what, what can we learn from this that we can use in kind of future unionizing efforts? What I would say is record everything, um, yeah. every single thing, every interaction that you have with management, 
Um, every captive audience meeting, uh, everything, record everything. Everybody has a phone on them, record it. Um, the other thing that I would say is to listen to the audio from these meetings. Um, there, some of the audio has been released, like, you know, um, not all of it has been released yet. There's still a lot of it that is, um, it's like 14, like 10 to 14 hours worth of meetings we have recorded. <laughs> <laughs> the, the audio that was released to the uh, Industrial Worker magazine when the, when the story first broke, um, there's an article uh, by Andrew Miller, and in that article there's a compilation of some of the audio that I think you've probably heard. Um, that audio is really important for inoculating people um, mm. to what to expect because every single thing that they did, every talking point that they gave us is from a playbook. And um, the other thing that I would recommend is get a copy of Confessions of a Union Buster by Martin J. Levitt. Uh, it is spot on everything. It's a blueprint. It is an absolute blueprint for mm. what these companies do. It doesn't matter if it's No Evil Foods, Amazon, Walmart, Target, whatever. They all use the same blueprint. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing, too, on on top, like. I agree. Of course, I agree. Everything John just said. Another thing, too, that I think where our organizing drive kind of dropped the ball on um, was we were constantly playing defense to the onslaught of misleading garbage they were feeding us. So mm -hmm. while I'm sitting there in these meetings and I'm pulling out, you know, the article that Courtney was talking about earlier that was talking about embezzlement from the UFCW and things like that. I'm sitting there explaining to him that, you know, I don't understand why you're putting this all over the building. You know, these people were held accountable. And I felt like at the time it was really important to debunk the propaganda that they were putting out because it wasn't exactly what had really happened. Mm -hmm. And what I feel like I should have focused my energy on instead was um, like finding out what people's genuine worries were about the job because it turned into this dynamic where um, all of us who were pro union came off like these argumentative, like just wanting to pick an argument with the owners when I should have been focusing on the rest of the employees there and figuring mm -hmm. out what their actual fears were of the place instead of just arguing the nonsense talking points with management. Mm -hmm. um, so, you yeah. know, I mean, learn my lesson, but um, it's, that's part of what talk, at least for me, that's part of what talking to all these news outlets and podcasts and different things is really good because you can kind of highlight, you know, all the nonsense that they're going to say to you. So you, mm -hmm. if somebody else is organizing and listening to it, they already know what they're going to be up against as far as that goes and really focus on what your fellow workers and fellow employees really need and want out of a workplace. So you can play off of that and go in on offense, like, Hey, we want these things. We want this, we want that instead of just playing defense, arguing with management. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's really great insight. Um, so again, Scott has uh, an answer here, um, that there were some things that, um, they could have done better. Um, one was focusing more on educating the workers about unions in the first place. So I guess that's kind of ties into what you're talking about. Um, in terms of, yeah, like reaching out um, and not only understanding what it is that they want from the workplace, but also um, just generally, um, you know, educating people on the value of unions and, you know, what 
you know, what happens in this, I guess, capitalist system. Um, so Scott says that they were dealing with a lot of Southerners who were raised to hate unions from an early age. Um, they had no real understanding of socialism either. So the fact that No Evil Foods was co-opting these things for their marketing really flew over a lot of people's head. Most of the workers had no idea who the Zapatistas were. Um, they didn't know the origins of the raised fist or where the word comrade comes from. So because of that, they didn't see the owners as being hypocritical, um, as hypocritical as they should have when they were, you know, sitting in anti-union meetings. Um, and then uh, they also said uh, what you said, John, about um, we should have documented a lot more of the things happening with audio, video and pictures. We did a pretty good job, but we could have done more. And um said that um, you should actually also record phone calls if you have them with management, um, but you can't really release those or you have to look into the legality of releasing that information, but it could help you in, in court anyway. Um, uh, they also said, write down a time and a date in a notebook of any time you're disciplined or talked to about something. So you have a record and you can um, have notes about the incident. So you aren't going off of fuzzy memory as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So I think that those are, um, yeah, <laughs> very good advice. And it is really good to, um, you know, get, get some insight on what you will be facing and, um, try to get ahead of that in any way possible. Um, and I agree that, you know, being on the offensive versus the defensive is definitely, um, the place that you want to be. Um, so what can people do today to support the workers at No Evil Foods? I believe there were still petitions going around, um, that people outside of the company could sign. Yeah, so uh, there is a website that was uh, created by somebody um, who was, I guess, inspired by the story. His name is – we should – okay. Yeah, well, <laughs> we know his name, but we're not going to say it. Um, yeah. But uh, the website is uh, moevilfoods.com, um, mm-hmm. and there's a petition on there. Uh, I would also recommend following the Mo Evil Foods uh, Twitter account. And there's another Twitter account called Birdie Gregson. I definitely recommend following that one as well. Those two accounts um, have been pretty good with updating people with information on what's on at No Evil Foods. Um, I would also say to look for Mo Evil Foods on uh, Instagram. Um, mm-hmm. The only problem with that is uh, Instagram has not been cooperating very well with us lately. Uh, one of the accounts was actually pulled this morning. Uh, so the uh, the safer pages are definitely Twitter um, mm-hmm. and the website, moevilfoods.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so that's really all the questions that I have. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to add before we go? And otherwise, um, I guess you don't want to shout out where people can find you on social media. It's just people should just go to the Mo Evil Foods <laughs> social media, which we'll link in the show box as well. I actually would like to encourage, um, I'm just, uh, can you pull up my Twitter? I can, sorry. Um, it's, uh, follow Megan Sullivan on Twitter. I have some numbers after it. I'm having him look it up right now, but if anybody is trying to organize their workplace, especially in North Carolina, um, especially at no evil foods. Yeah. Especially at no evil foods. If anybody's listening to this, um, but anybody, um, who's trying to organize their workplace or thinking about it and wants to know the first steps or wants advice or anything like that. Um, they can feel free to follow me on Twitter and send me a direct message. I'm more than happy to discuss anything about my experience with them and see what I can do to help. Um, so I'm Megan, M E A G A N S 
454-943-17. Sorry about that. I'm more than willing to help anybody if they want to send me a direct message. Perfect. That's awesome. Yeah, I will link that in the description box of this episode so people can check that out there. Um, And John, would you just direct people to MoEvil or? Um, I would definitely direct them to Twitter. Um, MoEvil too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, MoEvilFoods.com and then the Twitter handles are uh, MoEvilFoods and uh, Bertie Gregson. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This was a really great discussion. I think it'll um, be really illuminating for a lot of organizers. Unfortunately, we lost Courtney (laughs) uh, due to a storm, but that's okay. Um, So yeah, I just wanted to say thank you so much. Um, Really appreciate you coming on and talking about all this. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you.